Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast, brought to you by Martin Till. I'm McCain Vogel, Assistant Editor of No-Till Farmer. For today's episode, Frank Lesseter sits down with Penn State University soil scientist and agronomist Shord Diker to talk about what no-tillers should be doing to make their cropping systems even better. Give me a little background on you. You grew up in Europe, right? And then came to the States? Yes, I grew up in the Netherlands in a province called Friesland. It's in the north of the Netherlands. It's a very uh, rural area. Our house was uh, like we were looking out on the on the grass fields and the dairy pastures from our house. Mm-hmm. It just took forever because it's all flat the pancake. And I grew up there and didn't grow up on a farm, but I I was surrounded by all farms and I I loved just looking at uh, the fields and I also worked some on a dairy farm when I was a teenager and I had many friends who were farm boys uh, so we often went to the farms and played on in the in the barns and stuff like that from a young age I kind of grew up close to agriculture Sure so you went to uh, college or university in the Netherlands and yeah. then you came to the states right. Yep I studied first uh, actually I studied uh, tropical crop science in uh the uh, Agricultural University in Wageningen in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And then I spent two years uh, doing some work, a couple of years actually doing some work for different organizations, helped organize some conferences. And then I came to the United States after I had spent a little stint at a research institute where I was mostly sequestered in an, an, an office. <laughs> and I... Um, I was really getting very uh, antsy because I I wanted to have my boots on the ground and I wanted to rub shoulders with farmers. That was one thing I wanted to do. And I, I got very interested in soil conservation when I was doing that work. And I contacted Ratan Lal in, uh, sure. at Ohio State University. And uh, that was one of the people I contacted. And he offered me an assistantship. And then I went on to do my PhD at, in soil science at Ohio State. How long have you been at Penn State? 23 years. Wow. Okay. And you're uh, yeah. basically you're a soil scientist, right? Yep. Um, soil scientist slash agronomist. Let's talk a minute. You you know, you've said several times that we've got we've got people that have been uh, no-tilling for many years, and it's been a tool for controlling soil erosion. But now it's time to uh, improve the soils. So can you uh, give me some ideas on how no-tillers can improve their soils? First of all, when we talk about no-till, we always talk about the no-till system. Sure. It's not only just parking the plow in the shed and then starting the no-tilling and do everything the same right. as you did before. No, it's it's a system. So uh, components of the system are also keeping uh, a mulch cover or an organic cover at all times, either living or dead mulch, keep that soil covered. And also to have diversity in the, either in the crop associations or in the crop rotation. So when you use that, you can really ha- improve your soil with, first of all, you don't lose topsoil. That's the one thing, sure. which is the most valuable part of the soil. So we conserve that. But also that, that tillage is like uh, stoking the fire. So it's like I always compare it because that was a 
kind of a illustration I learned from Bobby Stewart, a uh, very recognized soil scientist. Once he made that comparison as when you're in the winter and uh, you're sitting around a fire and the fire kind of dies down and you get cold, what do you do? <laughs> you, you stoke the fire and you be- become hot. Right. And uh, but now the fire is going down. The, the embers are starting to burn up. And uh, when you do tillage, you're introducing oxygen into the aggregate by stirring them all up, breaking up the organic matter, and then that stimulates the uh, decomposition. Well, then the organic matter content goes down. And organic matter is really one of the most important indicators we have of soil health. Always when people talk about the best soils in the world, they always go either to the Midwest of the United States to the uh, pampas of Argentina or to the the soils uh, in in Ukraine, mm-hmm. and why do they go there? Because they are so high in organic matter. Sure. You know, due to the prairie uh, history, that organic matter just is it makes those soils so so productive, and so um, to to conserve that organic matter is is very important, and that is what you achieve with uh, no tilling. Hmm. Now, we're learning a lot of other things, too. For example, um, no-till also affects the life in the soil. So we know that uh, a biologically active soil is also a very important component of a healthy soil. So there we have, uh, for example, the larger and more visible organisms like earthworms are uh, very dramatically impacted by tillage. So if you you have different types of earthworms, like you have the big night crawlers, you have uh, other types that live more in the surface of the soil, they move more horizontally. And then you have some that live uh, in the organic layer. The ones that are the the big night crawlers that live in uh, permanent vertical burrows, basically, they, um, those are permanently open, those burrows, they move up and down in them. And then at night, they come out and look for organic material that's at the soil surface. They pull that to their burrow. Then that, that rots away some, and they they then can consume that. That's their food source. Then they come out and they deposit their, um, basically, their manure, which is a mixture of soil and organic matter from their gut, and they... They deposit that at the soil surface around their burrow, and that forms then the little midden that you see all over the, sure. the fields often in the spring. Well, those night crawlers are very heavily impacted by tillage because they can really not survive when that soil is uh, bare, and uh, they have to have that residue at the soil surface. So those ones, again, a benefit of no-till, you you get much higher populations of those, especially the other ones that live more in the surface of the soil. They are a little bit less impacted, but nonetheless, they're also impacted. So that's just one type of organism. Um, research has also shown that you get a higher um, microbial um, community, more microbes, especially more fungi, and those uh, help to, they're like nets around soil particles, helping to stimulate aggregation. And uh, those are some of the benefits of no-till. 
course, we also have a lot of uh, or like insects that live at the soil surface, and they often and need also um, shelter. So if there is mulch cover, they uh, will hide underneath there, and then they they can also be favored by no-till. So those are just some of the benefits. We also see that, for example, the fertility of the soil is affected too. Um, like um, the phosphorus, it becomes more available in the sure. surface of the soil because you don't stir it in with the soil where it's then kind of fixed all the time. And therefore that phosphorus uh, in no-till, we see higher availability of phosphorus near the soil surface. Those are some benefits that I can think of. We also yeah. really experience, um, like for the farmers, benefits in terms of the higher aggregate stability and the more stable soil structure makes that soil much more resistant to soil compaction. So that was always a, a big concern when I first started at Penn State. Uh, some people were saying, well, we can't do no-till because we are going to cause so much soil compaction. Uh-huh. with our equipment and uh, we looked into that and did research on that and then we found that if you um, as long as you limit the contact pressure and the axle load uh, to reasonable numbers I mean you can always destroy a soil any soil you can destroy you do your best but if you take proper precautions then that no-till soil is very resilient resilient because it has a more stable matrix, and then you have all the, the natural porosity that is formed by organisms in the soil, and also by by shrinking, swelling action of the, say, when the soil dries and wets or freezes and thaws. Yeah. All that helps to maintain its porosity. So going back to what you mentioned about phosphorus and not tilling it deeper into the soil, we have a number of no-tillers who say they don't need to put on either no phosphorus or a limited amount of phosphorus anymore. Because Is this because it's in the first two or three inches of the soil? Well, throughout the profile, but that's where it's um, more available, yes. Sure. No-till. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course, when you sell off grain every year from your farm, you sell it and it's all exported from your farm, you are exporting nutrients in, those, in that grain. So right. eventually, it has to be replaced. Uh-huh. We always need to keep that in mind. Right. But there is a very big pool of phosphorus in the soil. So uh, unfortunately, most of it is not available because it's all fixed by, by the soil uh-huh. and not easily available for the plants to take up. But with no-till, we see that that availability increases in the, because we don't mix that phosphorus with the soil. So if I've been no-tilling for a number of years and thought I was doing it successfully, what can I do to improve my organic matter? Well, I would say I would always look at um, how much organic matter are we returning to the soil. And, either crop residue or um, cover crops. So if we have, I mean, I heard of, of farmers, some farmers, they grow continuous soybeans. Yeah. Well, you do that, you are not going to build any organic matter because there's so little residue that is produced and the roots 
mass is small. So um, all that then doesn't help you to improve organic matter. So you need to find then crops, introduce other crops in your rotation that can add more residue and uh, also uh, the, the root. Uh-huh. Root mass is also very important. Um, so something like a, a crop like corn, of course, is, uh, is great for that purpose. Uh, yeah. Other things that you can do, I would say, is also um, trying to plug any, any fallow periods in your crop rotation where you don't have any living crop growing. That's uh-huh. why we have so much emphasis on cover crops trying to plant the cover crop after main harvest. Because if you have, say, a corn-soybean rotation, well, seven months in the year, roughly, you don't have a living root system there. Yeah. So to plug those holes. Now, and then the, another component of this is um, the livestock integration. would look hard at that. I mean, there's more and more openness, I think, to think about this again. To introduce livestock on the on the fields, or also what we in Pennsylvania, a lot of farmers are livestock holders, so they have manure, and sure. that manure, when you spread it on the fields, is of course also uh, organic matter, and that also helps to improve organic matter content. Uh-huh. But you can also graze animals, of course, uh, after harvest, so that's another way. So those are the fun things I would look for. Yeah. Well, you still got a lot of dairy farmers in Pennsylvania, and they cut corn silage. So uh, what recommendations yep. do you have for we're taking a lot of residue off when we cut potential residue off when we're cutting corn, corn silage? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that goes all into the barn, of course, and then uh, it's being fed to the animals, and part of that is then returned as manure again. Yeah, the there you go. <laughs> but, um, but, but we've we feel really uh, that after silage, we really need to have a cover crop there. Uh-huh. That system is really not sustainable if there is no cover crop. And that's right. really uh, a great opportunity because you're relatively early still in the season, in the in the sure. fall, you still have some season left. And those cover crops, typically, they grow really well because you also have a manure history. And... Uh, you can also apply manure to the cover crop. So those cover crops typically are very, very vigorous and look very good. How about uh, soil structure, ag- soil aggregate stability, etc.? Well, that um, that really improves. I I always like to talk about. Um, have you ever heard the, the the term soil profile modification? Sure. With no-till. Yeah. I mean. We were modifying the structure in the whole profile, actually, because near the soil surface is where we we see the improvement of aggregate stability with no-till because of the accumulation of organic matter near the soil surface and then lack of disturbance there. And then the, the activity of the earthworms with their uh, cast being deposited all the time at the soil surface. And then the fungi, a lot of that is also in the top few inches of the soil. And a, a lot of the roots, I mean, and if you look at the root system of a no-till plant, it looks very different from that from a, a plant that's grown in tilled soil. That root ball is 
is deeper in the soil, in the tilled soil. But in no-till, we have a lot of fine roots near the soil surface underneath that mulch cover. And those then also contribute again to the aggregate stability. And that's near the soil surface, all that, what's happening there. Mm-hmm. But then we have um, a lot more deep burrowing organisms like those nightcrawlers and deep burrowing earthworms that create more pores into even, um, I mean, those pores can be three, four feet deep. And uh, we have a lot more of those in no-till. So that creates some deeper porosity also into the subsoil. What about residue distribution? Uh, are, we, are farmers doing a good job of getting this residue spread with the combine or not? Or what can they do? What do they need to do? Yeah, that can still be an issue that you see these fields in the fall and in the spring, and you see just like windrows of crop residue in the field. Well, that is, uh, yeah, I always say, well, no-tilling starts at harvest. Sure. It doesn't start at planting. You really need to first have that residue distributed uniformly because if you don't, you just end up with so many problems. and uh, You don't get a good stand because you're planting some you cannot control that with your planter. You, you're setting up your planter, and then in some parts of the field, there's no residue. In other, other spots, you have uh, three inches. Well, how are you going to get feed to soil contact? There's no way. So that's absolutely necessary. And uh, But, you know, modern equipment now, the modern combines typically, I feel, they come with better uh, residue distribution capabilities than, than the old ones. In the olden times, we didn't even have them on the combine. Some right. of our combines didn't have a residue uh, distribution mechanism. Just dumped it all right there in a swath behind the combine. Right. So you need to really distribute it um, evenly over the whole harvest width. Otherwise, uh, you're going to introduce uh, just undesirable variability in the field. Yeah. Well, back here in the Corn Belt, we, we've got headers that are 40 and 50 feet wide. So getting the even mm-hmm. distribution is even more of a problem with these wider corn heads, and soybean heads. Right. But there's no way around it. You have to do it. Yeah. Very important. Right. I mean, if you can harvest the, the corn from 40 feet width, then you should also be able to spread the residue across <laughs> that 40 feet width again. <laughs> right. I mean, right. that's just what... You cannot neglect that. It's right. so essential for no-till because also there, there are a lot of nutrients in that residue, you know? Mm-hmm. For example, think about potassium, for example. That leaches mostly from the crop residue. So you are just like already also introducing a, a differences in, in nutrient availability. You don't spread your residue correctly. So um, these people that are maybe taking off straw or um, selling mm. it to other farmers or corn silage or mm-hmm. even alfalfa and grass, uh, what yeah. do they? What or even ethanol? Um, what do they need to do to get more re- get more residue on the surface? I suppose cover crops is going to be the answer. Yeah, but the only answer. Yep. Yeah. Right. Either cover crops or double cropping, cropping intensification. I'm not against harvesting the straw. I sure. <laughs> I remember we had Carlos Provedo uh, 
our no-till pioneer from uh, Chile. He sure, came right. here in the early days. We often invited him several times to come here speak, and it, it was just amazing uh, what he had done. And he he was always saying, well, the straw is for the soil, and the mm-hmm. grain is for the man. And, yeah, that worked for him. Um, he did a lot of work with that straw. He really worked that on it. He would have so much straw there, then he would windrow it with putting even a lot of effort. And then under that windrow, he next year he saw a great improvement in the productivity of that soil. Okay. But uh, that was a lot of work to rake all that residue up. And, uh, well, also our farmers, they really, that's a big economic component, that straw. In, uh, I don't know in now anymore with the grain prices having gone up, but many years was like the grain was as valuable as the straw. Right. So are you going to tell that farmer they can't harvest the straw? That is like uh, a little bit uh, not very re- re- relevant. Right. So then we focus on, well, when you have taken that straw off, you should immediately plant the cover crop there as quickly as possible. And you know that is then also much easier to get that established instead right. of having that very heavy straw residue there. And corn silage is a very important also uh, commodity here for and a feed source for our farmers. So they grow the corn for that purpose and then you take the whole plant off. Well, again, you have to then uh, take care of the soil by planting a cover crop immediately after that. A cover crop that can properly cover the soil quickly and and restore that soil. I still remember um, I, I have a good farmer friend here nearby. He's a very good agronomist also. And uh, he he said, I was always struggling with my no-till until I started using cover crops. Mm-hmm. He is a dairy farmer. He has uh, like several hundred dairy cows. And he has a very heavy manure spreading equipment that goes over the field regularly. And he would just compact that soil with that equipment. And then in the spring, that soil was looking so compacted that he always felt like, well, need to do some tillage to loosen that up. But then when he started using a cover crop, now he made sure that he that cover crop was really uh, well established and also put on good growth in the fall and in the spring. He typically used rye those days. Mm-hmm. Now I think he switched to critical more and he's actually harvesting that also feed again. Mm-hmm. But um, after he started doing that, that, that root system uh, really helped him. Just that makes the soil more resistant to compaction because you have like a biotextile underneath that soil where you then, when you're on it. Uh, but it also that, that growing root, uh, root that is also taking out the compaction again. Mm-hmm. So, with uh, that is another comp- very important component of that cover crop in a, a system like a corn silage system. We'll come back to the episode in a moment, but first I'd like to thank our sponsor, Martin Till, for supporting today's podcast. As farmers themselves, the people at Martin Till know the frustration 
that unforeseen obstacles can bring, especially the weather. While no one can control drought or untimely rains, Martin Till can help equip your planter to allow for more time spent planting and less time waiting to get seed in the ground. Thank you for considering Martin Till products. And now, let's get back to the conversation. So your farmers who are taking off uh, silage, are they uh, doing a single cover crop such as rye, or are they doing multiple mixes, or what do you recommend? Well, um, I mean, mixtures are good, but sometimes they're also more difficult to manage. I like mixtures, but I do think you need to think about what is each species doing in the mix. Uh-huh. Um, many times when you have a very diverse mixture, I find that there's a few species in there that really take over and the others are relatively uh, few uh-huh. of those plants. They don't really make it. So I, I'm personally, um, I typically, we do use also um, very diverse mixtures, but I like more um, two or three species perhaps. Uh-huh. That makes sense for me. Like I like a grass and a legume together. For example, we we have a rotation with. Uh, I have a long-term tillage study, and we grow corn, soybeans, and then after the soybeans, we plant wheat in the fall. Sure. And then the following in the year after wheat harvest, we plant a hairy vetch, and I like to plant that hairy vetch mixed with oats. Because okay. oats are like my my nurse crop that dies in the winter then. And then in the spring, I only have the hairy vetch because I'm really after the hairy vetch for nitrogen huh. and planting corn into that again. And uh, if we get a good stand of hairy vetch, that works great. And I don't really want to have an, an, a cereal there so much competing with that vetch in the spring. I, I really like the oats yeah, because they provide um, uh, protection for the hairy vetch. Over the winter, you know, that hairy vetch is, is very uh, wimpy early on. Looks doesn't look like much in the fall. It doesn't provide much soil protection. So I, I, I like that oat there. But then uh, then I don't mind that oat being dead in the spring and uh, being food for the earthworms. And then I want to really have that hairy vetch be very vigorous. And then we, we record how much nitrogen is in it and estimate how much nitrogen credit we get for it so we can reduce a nitrogen fertilizer application. You think about what do I want to achieve, is what I'm trying to say. Okay, in this case, we want a good cover in the fall. We want that hairy vetch uh, that's protected and that oat helps us protect hairy vetch by by capturing some snow, I think, is what it does, and also um, reducing wind. It doesn't get as, as cold and it just provides a nice protection. And then in the spring, we don't mind it to be winter killed. I mean, we could also use, um, we could also use rye, for example, and that that could also work. And then that rye could be a, like a trellis uh, for the vetch to grow up into in the spring. But now we have more fiber again and uh, could reduce somewhat our, our nitrogen availability from that vet, which right. is really what I'm after. Mm. 
in the, in your uh, research with Harry Vetch, what kind of nitrogen credits are you getting? Well, I would say 100 pounds at least. Mm -hmm. That's great. pounds per acre. But uh, we have grown on a 50 bushel corn with only starter, 40, mm -hmm. 40 pounds of N. That Harry Vetch, I, I really like it a lot. Yeah. Um, it's... Um, it's too bad that you have to establish it relatively early in the fall. So you cannot really do it except if you grow like a, a small grain. At least that's my experience. Mm -hmm. I know people are trying to plant fetch later and sometimes having success with that. But in our environment, I really haven't had luck planting it late. I like to have it in, in by the end of August in here in central Pennsylvania. Yeah. Get a little start, otherwise yeah. don't make it through the winter. Yeah, sounds great. What about uh, soil drainage? Uh, is it no-till yeah. need to put in more tile or what? Well, you know, in our state, we are blessed mostly with well-drained soils. We have some, some soils that are very, more poorly drained, but they are not so um, prevalent. Mm -hmm. So most most of our farmers don't use tile drainage, or only perhaps some spots, wet sure. spots, and they put some tile in. But we don't have a lot of systematic drainage like mm -hmm. they have in Ohio, for example, or other parts of the Midwest. Yeah. So in the northwest of Pennsylvania, we have some areas where there is more tile drainage. That can definitely help. I I do think it is uh is beneficial. Right. Also, I mean, if you think about cover cropping, for example, it becomes very difficult if you have water standing in the field. Those cover crops are very they're going to be drowned out. And uh, so with the drainage, you can also facilitate, you can really facilitate the no-till system. What do you see is not working in no-till today? Well, it's more like it's, it's a work in progress, I would like to say. For okay. Like not working but it's something that we need to understand better so we're we're working now with these massive cover crops and planting into them huge amounts of crop residue with planting green i'm still not completely sure that we understand the nitrogen dynamics uh, very well especially if we plant something like a high nitrogen demanding corn crop like corn into sure. rye or some other cereal um, we 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 often see there are nitrogen deficiencies. It just seems that stuff just uh, soaks up the nitrogen, mm -hmm. and it's then not available to the crop. So we need to uh, understand that better. There's now more um, like tendency to put more nitrogen up on front instead of just uh, later in the season to accommodate for that. But it's something that I still feel uh, we need to understand better. Yeah, I would really like to have a more leguminous cover crop options that we told you about the hairy vetch, but you can only plant it after small grain, mm -hmm. in my experience. Or perhaps after corn silage, you could do it, but then you had to really push the limb, the agenda there. It would be really great to have more leguminous options for cover crops. I haven't really found them prior to corn. But then I also think there are a lot of uh, misconceptions about no-till. Like um, this, all this vertical tillage equipment that is being pushed. And uh, 
I mean, the salesmen, they will say, just say things to to justify that farmers will really need to have that piece of equipment. Like um, I saw recently uh, an article and our salesperson was saying, well, the, the farmers are really struggling with soil compaction and no-till, in continuous no-till. Sure. And that is just not my experience, as I uh, have told you, that uh, I find the soil becomes more forgiving to soil compaction. Mm-hmm. Less soil compaction. And actually, these, these vertical tillage tools, they're causing their own compaction below the tillage tool. So I think that that is just more anecdotal information that people are just saying that, but I don't think yeah. it's really uh, a reality. So uh, looking at uh, no-till in Pennsylvania and the Northeast, is acreage growing? Is it flat or is it dropping? You know, we've seen a tremendous increase. When I came here in Pennsylvania, the, the uh, no-till acres was about 20% of the planted acres were all were um, using no-till. Uh, that was in the days that the uh, transact surveys were still done. So that is how we we have those data. Now that is not uh, done consistently statewide anymore. But here in Pennsylvania, actually, in the Chesapeake Bay watershed, we do have still uh, transact surveys that are being done. So now our um, our no-till is uh, about 67 percent. Did you say 67? Uh, two thirds? Yeah, roughly. Okay. Yeah, two thirds. Wow, yeah. that's great. No, that's just. Yeah, but I I don't feel um, it doesn't seem like it's increasing anymore. Hmm. It's just like we're at that level, and I'm not sure. And now I'm I'm sometimes a bit concerned about these uh, these vertical uh, no, different types of tillage that are suddenly coming up on the scene, right? And start to be introduced, and that could really uh, it could really reduce. It could go backwards. It's not like a given that we are just going to see this level stay here where it's at or increase. It could also mm-hmm. go down. Yeah. Um, there's a, also a our government, our Pennsylvania government, is very supportive of organic farming. Uh, they really see that as something that needs to be increased and pushed. And, uh, well, you know, with organic farming, probably uh, it's going to be more tillage. Yeah. Because they don't have uh, ways to control weeds without tillage in annual crops. So, I mean, there are some options, but it's only um, from time to time. If you you say organic no-till, it's not continuous no-till. It's only no-till here and there. Right. And then it needs to be followed by probably mulberry plowing to get rid of the weeds that have accumulated then during that mm-hmm. period. Yeah. Another thing, um yeah, about we also need to really keep our um thumb on the on the weed control. If we lose the herbicides uh and uh herb weed Weeds becoming resistant to herbicides, that's a real threat for no-till, I think. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm really concerned about that. 
when you see these weeds that are resistant to several different uh, herbicides, that becomes a real problem. So we need to be vigilant there. Yeah. Um, we we talked about the no-till acreage kind of being flat. Do you, do you see this as a yeah. generational change? Uh, younger people think they need to do more tillage, or are they sold on no-till? You know, we are blessed in Pennsylvania with having a very active group of no-till farmers sure. that are real uh, interested in soil health and really committed to no-till. And we have this the no-till uh, association, the Pennsylvania No-Till right. Association. And uh, they really are providing a tremendous like motivation for farmers and and also for the younger farmers huh. to to be serious about no till. So I really feel very good about that part. Yeah. Um I think perhaps it's the companies that can make money on tillage that are uh, pushing the tillage. Mm -hmm. um, now, there's also some researchers, uh, like right now, we uh, have all the talk about nutrient stratification. Sure. And uh, I'm surprised how quickly researchers are willing to say, well, we need more tillage mm -hmm. to get rid of that. And uh, I feel very, uh, very mixed feelings about that. I think we should really not throw out the child with the bathwater, so to say. <laughs> right. I mean, we we did so much work to help our farmers be successful with no-till, hmm. and it has just paid tremendous dividends in terms of soil erosion reduction and increasing infiltration, and for our farmers to make more profitable. So before uh, just immediately pulling the plug and say, well, we need to do more tillage, why don't we look for opportunities or, or solutions to these uh, problems without doing tillage? Mm -hmm. That's where right. I think we, how we should right. look at that. But if those uh, researchers often have a, I mean, they have a lot of influence on policymakers and uh, could easily uh, impact that. Right. That, that can become a, a threat, right. no-till. So um, you recently spent a sabbatical in Europe. Did you look at no-till while mm -hmm. you were there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I worked with the Spanish Association of uh, Conservation Agriculture. Mm -hmm. What did you find in Europe that could come back to the States? I was really impacted by just how heavy-handed government just influences over there. Mm -hmm. um, it seems the farmers are doing a lot of things just because they get subsidies for it, or they sure. are prohibited, or they are, yeah, prohibited from doing certain things. And uh, that was one thing that I, you know, I love. One thing I love about America is uh, just the uh, can-do attitude. Sure, right. And um, 
innovation. Like people have made so many inventions in, in America, uh, invented so many things. And uh, that spirit of like, let's try out new things. Let's do something new. Yeah. Uh, you cannot have that if you have all the time the government looking over your shoulder. Mm-hmm. And I feel uh, sometimes we, we, many people don't realize that we need freedom to do things. And uh, I find that we, we need to guard ourselves. Yeah. You know, too heavy government telling what to do. I'll just tell you an example. What happened to me? I was on a farm. I was, my wife is from there. So I was uh, staying at the farm. It's just a, a small farm. And uh, my father-in-law passed away, so they're not really uh, farming it anymore. There's a guy, he, he grazes some sheep there. But they have a lot of different uh, fields and different types of vegetation. And one field had a, well, they have a lot of trees on the property. Well, there was an oak tree that had uh, a branch that had fallen off years ago, a very big branch. And... Uh, Somebody had already removed some of that, but I, I was just going there and cutting that up and make some firewood. And lo and behold, some uh, two guys come uh, with, with hats on and, and uniforms. They come to me, and uh, it's like the environmental police. <laughs> <laughs> they were coming to tell me, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm just uh, cutting some firewood here on our property. Uh, he said, well, do you have a permit for that? I said, what? I didn't even know there is, I need a permit. This is our own land. Right. Uh, now you can just have uh, cut the trees down on your property without permit. <laughs> so <laughs> then I said, well, this branch was already dead. Oh, well, uh, can you show us that? And so I had to get take these guys up there. It was on a steep hill. They yeah. followed me all the way. I had to walk them there. Next thing they asked, they said, oh, yeah, it looks like this branch was already dead. And the uh, next thing they said, um, but do you have a, fi- uh, a fire prevention plan? Because uh, if not, uh, you're also in trouble. Yeah. So I didn't know that because my father-in-law had passed away. And so we had to check that out. And, oh, man, but the level of government oversight is uh, pretty sometimes right. excitement. You become scared to do anything anymore on your land. So I think we should more for stimulate people to be trying out things and be innovative. Right. Well, that's um, one good one good thing about uh, no tillers. They've always been innovators. They're willing to try new yeah. ideas more so than the whole general farm public pub, uh, population. Right. And, yeah. Uh, I I have several. We have so many examples here in Pennsylvania where people have. I mean, they form companies, they, they are making equipment like the, the cover crop roller uh, that can be uh, the attachment that can be mounted on the planter. Sure. It was uh, developed by a farmer engineer uh, here in Pennsylvania. Right. I mean, that, I just think those things are tremendous. Uh, Tillage Reddish is uh, Steve Groff. He mm-hmm. really pushed that and developed that. I mean, people finding those kinds of things and finding solutions. uh, I just really appreciate that.
That's it for this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. Thanks to Shore Diker and Frank Lesseter for that great conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Till, for helping to make this podcast possible. A transcript of the episode and our archive of previous podcast episodes are both available at notillfarmer.com. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm McCain Vogel. Thanks for listening. Keep on no-tilling and have a great day.